welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis and when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed life, post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person, and dementia teaches you this too. My guests today are two women who both know a lot about this much-feared condition. Chris Maddox was diagnosed with vascular dementia six years ago at the age of 60. At the time, she viewed it as a death sentence. But the Alzheimer's Society saved her, and when she became one of their ambassadors, she discovered hope and a renewed sense of purpose. But when COVID struck in the spring of 2020, it brought her life to a sudden stop. By then, her initial diagnosis of vascular dementia had changed to one of vascular Parkinson's, and she also had asthma, so she was on the vulnerable list and only allowed to venture out for exercise. Lockdown brought back the terror and panic of her diagnosis, the sense that everything had been taken away. And to complicate matters still further, during the pandemic, Chris's diagnosis changed yet again, this time to that of Lewy body dementia. It's a form of dementia that was virtually unknown until the beginning of this century, though the Lewy Body Society, set up in 2006, describes it as the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's disease. I have to say that I thought vascular dementia was the second most common form, so I will have to ask about this when we get going. My second guest is Rachel Thompson. Rachel is an Admiral nurse, a dementia nurse supported by the charity Dementia UK, and she specialises in Lewy body dementia. Although this form of the condition accounts for roughly 10 to 15% of cases, it is still underdiagnosed and misunderstood, and a large part of Rachel's role is to increase awareness of this lesser-known disease and offer expert clinical advice. It was when Chris was struggling to find any support after being told she had Lewy body disease that she was put in touch with Rachel, and for the first time since her diagnosis, it all began to make sense. Rachel helped Chris and her partner Heather to develop coping strategies for Chris's symptoms, which include loss of taste and smell, difficulty with coordination, sleep problems and balance issues. And as with all Admiral nurses, Rachel also offered the couple support with emotional and psychological issues. For as well as the challenges of Chris's dementia, the pair encountered discrimination as a lesbian couple. They had to contend with what they describe as double stigma, both for Chris's dementia and for their same-sex relationship. Rachel gave them the confidence to be more open about their status. Chris's partner Heather put it very well when she said that Rachel's strategies have taught her not to get hung up on the little things because they don't matter. What matters, she says, is the time that she and Chris have together. So Chris Maddox and Rachel Thompson, a very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Thank you, Pippa. 
Thank you, Pippa. No pleasure. So I'm going to turn first, if I may, to you, Chris. Well, and in fact, before we get going, so that I don't forget, you've just told me something quite extraordinary, which I think it's worth flagging up right at the beginning. Would you like to tell everybody, Chris? You tell everybody what you've just heard. Okay. Um, for a while now, the Alzheimer's Society have been looking for a person living with dementia to be on the board of trustees because I think it's vital that they have a person living with dementia to help guide them in some of the decision-making and tell them how it really is for people like myself. There were 27 applicants for this position. I was one of the applicants. I got down to the final four, and I just found out that I have been given the position of being a member on the board of trustee for the Alzheimer's Society so I can put my views forward. I think that's brilliant. Congratulations to you. And also what a brilliant thing that the Alzheimer's Society has Perhaps it's a bit late in the day, but they are finally realising that it's very important to have people with that lived experience on their board. Yeah, absolutely. So well done, Chris. That's a huge stride, I think. And what I was going to say, but I think that's incredibly important, was can you tell me a little bit about your life before dementia? Because I know that you were, correct me if I get anything wrong, but a police officer with the South Wales Police Force Criminal Investigation Branch for 30 years, which sounds both... Well, actually, it just sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your career before dementia, and then we'll come to the dementia. OK. Yeah, it sounds a bit like a life sentence, doesn't it, 30 <laughs> police officer? I never wanted to be a police officer. I always wanted to be a PE teacher. Huh. However, um, on my 16th birthday, when I was doing all my school exams, I had meningitis and I didn't get the qualifications I needed to go to college. So I started off doing some dental nursing. Then I worked in Marks and Spencers and all I knew was that I didn't want a nine to five office job. So I saw um, vacancies to be a police officer and I thought, well, I'll apply for that. Never thinking I'd even get an interview. So I started working for the police on the 2nd of January, 1978. And in those days, I was the token policewoman. A lot of the men didn't think that women should be in the job. There was an age restriction. There was a height restriction. I had to be five foot six to be a policewoman. And it was very much a case of, you're the woman, go and make the tea. Hmm. And as a woman in the police force, I had to prove myself much more than the men did. And sometimes if I got into one of the CID departments, I'd be asked the question, well, who did you sleep with to get that job? Crikey. So it was very, um, it wasn't very politically correct, shall we say. But I think I was naive and I was told I was a survivor because women who joined the police force around that time were survivors or they left within five years. Mm. So the fact that I did my 30 year service, five of those years I did work in Interpol in London, right. which was very interesting. And um, yes, I. I carried on working until I retired after my 30 years service. Brilliant. And then I carried on working after that, but I was doing agency jobs and I was still working when I had my first dementia diagnosis. Mm. Well, very interesting story for a start. And do you think you are a sort of born survivor? I think I am, yeah. Mm. I think I get that from my mum. Okay. Because I'm a half cup. I'm a half-full cup type of person. Yeah, I know so what you I, mean. <laughs> if I can get my words out. Yeah. 
yeah, I like to think that there's things I can do. Yes. And if there's obstacles, I try and overcome them. Yes, yes. The other very interesting thing, apart from the content of what you've just said, is that, of course, you're already dispelling one of the myths around dementia, that it's all about memory. Because what a mm-hmm. good memory you've got. You even remember the date. Exactly. So that actually is great for all forms of dementia because it doesn't really matter what type. That's not the only symptom, which a lot of people mistakenly think it is, oh, you know, a bit forgetful, which is ridiculous. But now you have Lewy body dementia, and we'll come on to exactly what that is. I'll bring Rachel in then, but can you just tell us the first symptoms of your Lewy body dementia? Yes, um, I was aware that things were changing and developing from when I was diagnosed with uh, vascular dementia. And um, some of the symptoms that I had, I'd lost my sense of taste and smell. Mm. That was pre-COVID. Yes. So I knew it wasn't something to do with that. I have painful and restless legs. And I mean very painful. And it would always start early evening. Mm. Um, I didn't sleep very well. And then I had lack of energy for not getting enough sleep, anxiety and low mood. I had some balance issues and changes cognitively and more forgetfulness. Mm. I had some swallowing difficulties, uh, forgetting to do some things, little interest in doing things and difficulty in concentrating Mm. and staying focused. But my memory is not too badly affected. No, obviously not. Was it difficult because it was COVID to get the diagnosis? Because quite a few of those symptoms are some of the symptoms of COVID, as you say, the loss of senses, smell, taste, feeling extremely tired. It was weird, COVID, or it is weird, but because it had so many different symptoms for different people. So did they begin to think it might have been COVID or...? No, because the symptoms started a few years before sure, I actually got sure. the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. They do say that on average, um, it takes 4.4 years yeah. to get a diagnosis yeah. after you have the, the dementia. Yes, absolutely. So, no, I have the symptoms well before. Why do you think about the Louis stopped. body? Because the Louis body was diagnosed during COVID, wasn't it? And the Louis body symptoms seem to be slightly... I don't know if, Rachel, do jump in at any point if you want to, because I know you're an expert on Louis body dementia. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting, Pippa, because Lewy body dementia can be really puzzling. Yeah. And as Chris has described, her kind of journey, mm. cognitive changes and her different symptoms, there often are overlaps. Mm. And so often actually, Lewy body dementia is something I think people are starting to hear a little bit more about. But mm. you know, the Lewy body society has a phrase that it coins: "It's the most common disease you've never heard of," mm. and it, it, it does account for we think at least ten to fifteen percent. There are some estimates that say it could be up to twenty percent of all dementias. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that because I was very, very puzzled because throughout my time of writing about dementia, which is quite a few years now, actually, always I've thought, I don't know, mistakenly, that the number two, number one is Alzheimer's, by far the most common, but number two, I thought, was vascular dementia. Is Lewy body dementia a form of vascular dementia? Is that what no. or what? Tell me, tell me. No. Yeah, yeah, and, and it is confusing. So Alzheimer's is still the most common form of dementia. And actually, a lot of people with Lewy body, we think may have what we call a mixed dementia. Yes. 
So they may have some what we call Alzheimer's pathology, some Alzheimer's changes in the brains, but the predominant symptoms and features are caused by these Lewy bodies. So that's the first most common type, still remains that. Vascular dementia is slightly different. So it's not what we call neurodegenerative because vascular is, as it says, it's to do with the, mm. the, you know, the blood flow in the brain. So it isn't quite as progressive in the same way. It doesn't come mm. the same classification. So whilst it is still relatively common, and of course, actually, research is now seems to say that actually there's quite a close link between vascular changes and Alzheimer's as well. So we are still learning vascular dementia is still quite common. Sometimes it's stroke, sometimes it's what we call small vessel disease. Yes. But Lewy body, I think, you know, even, you know, I've worked in dementia care for, gosh, I 25 years now, Pippa. Mm, and mm. I look back to some of the people I looked after and some of their symptoms, and they probably did have a Lewy body, but yes. I didn't know that at the time because we mm. weren't diagnosing it very well. So I think some of the symptoms that are, and Chris has some of the symptoms of Lewy body, but not all of them, and that can happen. So right. it can be a confusing picture. But as you rightly said, certainly in the kind of earlier parts of Lewy body dementia, memory changes, your classic short-term memory loss, isn't what you would see. It's not the first presented mm. symptom. But you do get, I wanted to pick up on this actually, because you get what we call cognitive fluctuations. Mm-hmm. Chris, you were talking, weren't you, about the, you know, your attention and your concentration. Mm. And that's actually what we see cognitively. With Louis body. It's kind of things like people just struggling. You might see that sometimes people are, are, are much better than others in terms of storing information, holding it, being able to retrieve it. But the main thing I come across with people saying is actually they just find it harder to concentrate. And so they're, and they'll have episodes where, you know, the family members will say, oh, you know, they're, they're a bit vacant. They kind of felt like they, they weren't quite there. And that's probably what we'd see more in Louis Body. Okay, but you do hear that a lot with, I mean, I my first guest on this series was Scott Mitchell, the widower of Barbara Windsor. He talks about her, you know, one of the first signs he saw was, she, he said that phrase, I think, exactly that phrase, she just seemed a bit vacant sometimes, she wasn't quite with me sometimes, and yet she was said to have had Alzheimer's disease. It's all very... It all seems a bit sort of blurry, doesn't it? The distinctions between the different types of dementia. Yeah, it can be. I suppose the difference between, and I don't, you know, I don't know enough about the pathology of what Barbara Mm, had. mm, mm. So I can't really comment on that. But actually these distinct vacant episodes in Lewy body are are, are kind of slightly different. They're not just somebody being vague and not being quite with you. It is almost, and, you know, I think this is perhaps something, you know, Chris doesn't quite get at the moment, but actually for some people it can be almost like they they just can't respond. Yeah, so literally not functioning really. Yeah, yeah. Those episodes, really you'll see them more as the the condition progresses. So sometimes, you know, I've had some families where, you know, they really, it's quite frightening because somebody that they're with Mm. just responds to them and they think maybe they've had a stroke. And then 30 minutes later... An hour later, two hours later, it's like they're back to how they were. Chris, is this sort of ringing any bells with you? Yes, it is. And I sometimes describe it as though I feel like I've got a fog in my head. Mm-hmm. 
and you can't seem to get out of this foggy situation. Mm. And another thing that is quite prevalent with uh, Lewy body dementia is hallucinations. Oh, yes, okay. And I don't get hallucinations, but I sometimes I have this feeling that somebody is next to me. Really? Or I go to talk to somebody that isn't there, oh. or I go to hand them something. And I'll get Rachel to explain what it's called, but sometimes I will smell the smell of burning wood, which I don't find offensive. And sometimes I always check with whoever I'm with to see if they can smell yeah. it. If they can smell it, I know it's real. Yeah. But if they can't smell it, um, what's it called, uh, Rachel? So that was what we describe as an olfactory hallucination. Yes, through the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is that frightening, yeah. Chris, or how do you feel? I mean, if you think somebody's next to you and they're not, that sounds like a ghost. You know, is it frightening? No, it's not frightening. I think I'm used to it now. Or I might think somebody's walking down the hall towards me and, and I turn and there's nobody there. So I'm just used to it. So, no, it's, it's not frightening to me. I, I don't get nasty hallucinations mm. and see things trying climbing up the wall and mm. things like that, which some people don't get. Mm. I can remember when I had my diagnosis and the consultant said to me, you may possibly have Lewy body dementia. Or when you got your first diagnosis initially? No, when I got my Lewy body dementia Lewy one, yes, diagnosis. Okay. And I said, well, what do you mean I may possibly have it? Do I or don't I have mm. it? And she said, we can, only, uh, we can only really tell on autopsy. Mm. And my reaction was, well, I'm not ready for that yet. But I know that for everyone, they tend to do... CT and MRI scans, mm. Rachel will correct me if I'm wrong, but you'll need to have a death scan for um, Lewy body dementia. So they seem, the health services seem to waste a lot of money on all sorts of scans. Mm. Whereas if they've got Lewy body dementia, why not give me the, the proper scan? What is that scan, Rachel? What is it, Chris, a debt scan? It's, yeah, shall I explain? Well, if it's simple. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's actually, it's a DAT scan. It's D-A-T. Basically, what it does is it measures the uptake of dopamine. Oh, okay. Oh, so right. So hence the Parkinson uh, connection. Yeah. So this is what's quite unique about Lumi body is the Parkinsonism and the people not having enough dopamine. And this is what this scan measures is, you know, are you getting enough dopamine kind of travelling into your receptors in the brain. Right. I just wanted to mention the sense of presence, actually, because that's distinct from olfactory hallucinations. So this is, when, you know, Chris, when you were talking about the sometimes I feel like there's somebody in the room with me or I go, this, this is kind of connected to hallucinations, Pippa, and it, it people describe it, we call it a sense of presence. Mm-hmm. And for some people it's quite, uh, it, it can be there kind of quite a lot of the time. And can feel very real. And it's always, I always kind of see it is that there are different types of hallucinations and the sense of presence, it's almost like on this kind of continuum or this spectrum. For some people, they don't necessarily see something that's not there, but they they get this real sense. Mm, 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 And then mm. you turn around and they're not there. So that's what Chris was describing. Do we know why that is? Because that's fascinating to me. It's very odd. I mean, you know... I think there's a lot of things we don't really understand about the brain. About the brain, yeah, absolutely and, true. And, mm-hmm. and I think even the why hallucinations happen, you know, there's been lots of research and really it's about the kind of connections between the back of your brain and the front of your brain and the, mm. and the, and the pathways. Okay. It's probably similar mm. to that. 
but it mm. is just the brain isn't isn't interpreting kind of things properly. Mm. And we think in Lewy body because these Lewy bodies are kind of stopping the pathways. That's the, that's the kind of easiest way to explain it, but it is for sure much more complicated than that. Yeah, sure. Okay, well that's no, that's interesting though, isn't it? And so, Rachel. I'm going to turn to you now in your role as an Admiral Nurse, and I know you also work for the Louis Body Society, but it's in the sort of related capacity. Tell us exactly, for a start, because a lot of people won't know, exactly what an Admiral Nurse is and what you offer to families, actually, because you're very much an expert who goes into work really with a family, isn't it? It's not just the individual who is living with a dementia. I mean, that's I'm a huge fan of Admiral Nurses, can I just say, and have been for years. I think it would be wonderful if we got to a point where everybody who was diagnosed and needed one had an Admiral Nurse in their family. But tell us what they are exactly. Yeah, so... I mean, Admiral nurses are really essentially we're dementia specialist nurses. So we're all nurses who have got a background in working with people with dementia, who perhaps some people have gone and done extra kind of education and training. But we come into this role because, and the reason I came into this role, because it looks at the whole family. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think in lots of health and social care services, people often kind of forget that the family exists around somebody. And it's so important, you know, I think, you know, Pippa, as you know, but also as Chris has talked about, you know, with her partner, Heather, is dementia, you know, it's an easy thing to say, but it it doesn't just affect one person, does it? You know, and even when people don't have very supportive families immediately around them, there's often somebody, you know, it might be a neighbour, it might be a friend, it might be a distant relative, but there's somebody there who will be impacted by that diagnosis. Mm. So that's what Admiral Nurses are, what I see are kind of slightly different role is that we're, we're given the remit to work with the whole family, mm-hmm. recognising that dementia can affect different members of the family in different ways as well. So we will work with a person with a condition, we will work with the family care. It might be the kind of what we call the primary care or the main yes. care, multiple family members. And sometimes people need separate support. I think that's the other mm. thing I've learned in my career is that sometimes people need a bit of a separate space just to say, this is how I'm feeling. And I and it can be difficult to say those things yes. in front of members of your family. Yes, because you're a bit of a counsellor as well, aren't you? I mean, you have a lot of different hats that you wear. That's how I see you, because I remember when I first years ago did a piece and had never heard of them or went off and talked to about six different animal nurses, and they all said to me, you know, that they had multiple roles because you have mm. to be very expert in the, the medical side of because a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people with dementia will have what's technically termed comorbidities, they'll have other conditions going on, partly because it is often associated with older people who tend, but, you know, for whatever reason, there tend to be a lot of things going on in that individual. And you can get medications interrupting with other medications, so you can be very careful about that. And the Mm. number of of abnormal nurses I've spoken to who have said, well, actually, somebody thought somebody was deteriorating, but it was really just that their medication needed to be ironed out a bit. So anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. You carry on in your own words. Oh, no, it's okay. Well, I think it just shows the kind of different roles that, you know, we potentially can kind of play. So, yes, as you say, a lot of people do have other things, other conditions, illnesses. 
And particularly, you know, kind of the older, older group mm. will have multiple. I think it's kind of the average person over the age of 80 has 10 other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, medication's huge. And I, you know, I think as a society, we probably are at risk of over-prescribing. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes if people deteriorate, actually, yeah, you can help review. Now, we may not be the expert in all those other conditions, mm-hmm. but we can connect people and question and query. And I think that's one of the things that... Certainly, adult nurses who work in, in community settings can link with the GP, can link with yes. the neurology, can link with the memory service, yes. and link with social services. Because often I hear families just completely overwhelmed. You know, it is absolutely, such a absolutely. And there's another important role, isn't it, to be the sort of linchpin? Yeah. The yeah, you know, helping people understand the condition, helping people develop coping strategies, emotional support is huge. Yes, so that brings us back actually to Chris and Heather in a way because one of the ways you really supported them Chris can I bring you back in again here and just explain when you say you you and Heather felt like it was a double stigma I completely understand that just uh talk to us about how how difficult it was and then how Rachel helped you find some coping mechanisms there um yes it was difficult and I knew nothing at all about living body dementia and so Rachel explained a lot of things to me and it was so important to me that Heather was involved as well mm-hmm. because she she understood things in a different way to me. And one of the exercises that Rachel did with us both, it still astounds me to this day, but we had to think as the other person would think. So in other words, Rachel would ask us a question and I would have to think how Heather would answer it, mm. and she would have to think how I answered it. Mm. Oh, my gosh, we thought we knew each other so well. Yeah. But we gave totally different answers, and I said, no, no, I wouldn't think like that. And she said, but I wouldn't think like that. So Interesting exercise for any couple, actually, isn't it? And it taught, it taught us not to make assumptions, because we could all make assumptions. Absolutely. But we honestly thought we knew each other so well, but doing that exercise on its own showed us that we thought about things in different ways. Which most people do. Would you like to give listeners a little um, pen picture of Heather? Oh, I don't know if she'd like me to do that. Well, just very, very broadly. I mean, I was just thinking in terms of that making sense about why people think differently, maybe. I mean, you were a, a police officer for a long time. I don't know what Heather's background was in. but Heather was a police officer as well. So, we, you know, we had similar work backgrounds. How long have you been together? Oh, I always get this wrong. We met in 2006 and we've been together as a couple since 2010. Oh, 12 years. Yeah, so it was before I had my dementia diagnosis and we had our retirement all mapped out and planned out and Mm. holidays and we have a touring caravan and we were going to travel around Europe. Mm -hmm. And we haven't been abroad since 2012. Oh, my God. Which was when I started getting my, my strokes. So... All of our plans have totally changed. It's very tough. Um, I can remember when Heather asked me to move from from Wales to England, and I kept saying no at first because I didn't feel it was fair to impose my dementia on her. Mm -hmm. So I suppose I was giving her a get-out-of-jail card. Yes. But she kept saying no, and uh, so, yes, I did move here. Mm. And um, we both lived on our own for quite a long period of time, so suddenly sharing a house together was... Mm. Quite different. And we're still living under the same roof, so something must be going on. It's working, yes, yes, yes. 
But that sounded wonderful, actually, because, yes, like a lot of people I talked to with dementia, you did give her the get-out-of-jail-free card, but actually she didn't want to go anywhere. She wanted to be with you. No. But, you see, my dad had dementia, and I, I saw how it affected him and how mm. his partner became... Because my mum died when she was quite young, but his partner became a prisoner in the home, and she couldn't go out anywhere. And I didn't want to see Heather in that position. And I have said that not if my condition gets bad for me, but it might be get bad for Heather and for Heather to cope. And I've said if I get to that position to put me into a care home, mm -hmm. not many people would say that. And it's not really where I want to be, mm. but I wouldn't want to see Heather tied to me and tied to the house 24 hours a day. It's not just me who has the dementia no. diagnosis. Mm. It's Heather, my brother, my sister, my friends. Mm. Mm. You know, we all get that diagnosis and we all have to live with it. Mm. Just tell us a bit more about the stigma that you felt was going on there because you were a same-sex couple. Just give us one or two of the examples that happened there and how Rachel then gave you the confidence to... I, I think that I was in my 30s before I realised that I liked um, women, but... As a police officer, I would never come out about my sexuality because you would have been discriminated against. Maybe not visibly, but it made life difficult for you. So I was very private and I always, you know, kept my private life to myself. And then I started doing some work with Alzheimer's Society about LGBTQ plus people living with dementia. And... When I met Heather, I thought, crumbs, you know, I'm in my 60s. It's about time I was honest and open about my life. And I think that I've been in hospital settings where they say, oh, your friend can leave the room now. And I've said, well, actually, this is my partner, not my mm, friend. Mm. And normally you get things like, oh, that's nice. You know, how long have we been together? Where did you meet? But we've just got a, oh, response. Mm, mm. And I've had situations where... People have talked to Heather and not talked to me because they know I have dementia. Yes. And I speak up now and I say, I can, you're talking about me mm. and I can still mm. understand, so please talk to me. Mm. It's almost like a double stigma. You have a stigma when you have a dementia diagnosis. Mm. But if you're in a, a member of the LGBTQ plus community, that's another stigma. Sure. So that's what I mean by a double stigma. Yes, I had the same response. Do you know Tom and Mike, a gay couple? Yes. I think it was Mike who was saying, you know, that they felt like they were sort of perpetually coming out, as it were, because they came out when they first got together. It was actually illegal to live together. And then they felt they had to come out again, you know, when Tom had his dementia. So it's like this sort of constant coming out, which must be awful in so many different respects, I think. I think we beat ourselves up enough without having other people beat us up as well. Exactly. That's a very good point as well, yeah. Now, tell me about how the Alzheimer's Society sort of saved you, though. It was a particular programme, wasn't it, that you joined that took you from being so despairing to then feeling hopeful again, getting more confidence? Before I had any dementia diagnosis, I went to my GP, just things that, like uh, one morning I got up, couldn't remember how to get dressed. Hmm. And when I lived on my own, I had three things to do in the morning, make myself a drink, feed my cats and take my medication. But I found myself wandering around and not actually doing any of those things. So I went to my GP, whose response to me was that she was there for my physical health and not my mental health. Crikey. And I left there in tears. 
I'm not surprised. So a few months later, fearing I was having another stroke, I ended up in hospital and I was referred then to the elderly care assessment unit. So I went there on my own thinking I was just being assessed and I got my dementia diagnosis. Oh, and all I can remember was the word dementia. I couldn't remember the sure. rest. Sure. And I went home and I became a prisoner in my house for about three months. And I can remember sitting at home one day thinking, you have a choice here. You can either sit on the sofa, watch daytime television and vegetate, mm -hmm. or you can do with what's uh, left of your life. Mm. And just after my diagnosis, I lost my job. Mm. So that's when I said I felt hopeless and useless. Mm. Mm. Was it a direct result of your diagnosis that you lost your job? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. After being put on a disciplinary process and things like that. And then I thought, you've got to try and do something. So I rang the Alzheimer's Society. Mm -hmm. My GP had already sent me to mind and I did a course on depression because they thought it was depression. Yeah, that's very common, isn't it? And they came out that day, I rang them and they gave answers to some of the many questions that I had. And... They said that they were running a course called Living Well with Dementia, and it's for people newly diagnosed. And um, there's a group of you meet weekly for about six weeks, I think. So we were able to talk about how we felt. And you think you're the only person going through yes. a certain situation, yeah. but you found out that, that you weren't. Yeah. So we used to laugh together, cry together. And we talked about wills and lasting powers of attorney and everything. And... I was asked to start giving some talks as a result of going on this course because they thought I spoke well. And then the more I gave talks, the more I was asked to give talks. Mm -hmm. So that's why I described that course as my lifesaver. We all need a sense of purpose. We all need a reason to get out of bed Absolutely. in the morning. Absolutely. I'd lost my sense of purpose. Mm. But by doing talks and raising awareness, it feels as though I have my sense of purpose back. You, you certainly do. I mean, and look, you're a trustee of the Alzheimer's Society now. We have to tell people that it was actually Rachel who nominated you for the award. And just to really embarrass you, Chris, um, in her nomination, she said about you that Chris used her resilience, positivity and drive to improve understanding and awareness of dementia and improve the experience for others. And I'd written myself a little note saying, yes, there's really nothing like someone with the condition campaigning about the condition. It's by far the most powerful advocate is somebody living with dementia, I think. So, you know, you, you certainly do have a most tremendous purpose. I think that when I speak, I, I, I speak for myself, but I also speak for those people living with dementia who don't have a voice. Yeah. And maybe they can't stand up and say how it is for them. Mm -hmm. I, I've spoken to these people on peer support meetings and things like that. So I'm not just speaking for me. I'm being their voice as well. Absolutely. And there's so much ignorance and so much raising of awareness that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Trying to do my little bits and I, I want to do it as much as I can whilst I can because yes. I know there'll come a point with my dementia that I won't be able to do talks and things like that. So, yes. yeah, just get on with it, I tell myself. Yes, absolutely. I find it fascinating the way so many people living with dementia that I talk to say that quite understandably, I'm thinking of Peter Berry here. I don't know if you know Peter Berry, who's a man living with dementia, again, diagnosed pretty young. And he actually came close to suicide twice in the immediate sort of months afterwards. 
And then there seems to come this point. I don't know whether it's just one needs time to digest the diagnosis, to really work it through inside yourself, but there seems to come a point for him, it was literally when the second time he was standing on a tractor waiting to sort of jump off it almost, and then he thought, well, I can either do this, in his case, what he, in his words, he said, you know, it was a selfish act and for my family and my wife, or I can just, as you said, you know, try and get on with it and do what I can. And, and of course, he now as well does a lot through his cycling. I just wonder when it is and what it is that gives people that click, that switch from helpless, despairing to some sort of hopefulness. I think a lot of what it is is, is the way that you get your, your dementia diagnosis a mm. lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And myself and many other people, we're told you've got dementia, go and get your affairs in order. There's no hope there at all. Mm -hmm. And Rachel and I were at the Louis Body Conference and there were a lot of the top people from the Louis Body world at the conference. And I said to them, please, could you just give us some hope? Yes. When you give us a dementia diagnosis. And you could, they could just say something like, yes. there are things that you may not be able to do, but there's still lots of things you will still be able to do. You feel, I felt when I had that diagnosis, well, what's the point in being here? Because I've got nothing I can offer, nothing I can give. But it's being aware that we still do have qualities that we can offer mm. and we can give. Mm. Mm. When I moved to England, I did some voluntary work in a hospice mm. because I can't work, mm. but I'm a people person and I wanted mm. to carry on doing things. Mm. And that's what we need. We need to find that sense of purpose for each of us in our lives. Mm. No, absolutely. I think it's very interesting, Chris, actually, that if the diagnosis was delivered with some message of hope somewhere within it, how very different and how much better that would be. Quite a small thing, isn't it, to ask for? It is a small thing, and because you think that there's nothing you can do, your life has come to an end. Mm -hmm. So I have them saying, look, you know, there are some things you won't be able to do, but there's a lot of things that you still can do. That gives you hope. That little glimmer of hope, yes, to keep going. And then, yes. And Rachel, if I could bring you back in again now then, because presumably this is one of the things that's, this is where your role comes in, isn't it? To show people what it is they can still do and how they can still do it. I mean, we talked about coping strategies earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just actually reflecting while you were talking. Um, I think that's the thing that has really changed in dementia care over the last 10, 15, 20 years is the idea that there can be hope and there are things that you can do. And um, Chris, of course, is amazing in the way that she approaches her. Yes, so she's a living embodiment. <laughs> mm. Absolutely. And there are, as Chris said, that some people, for all sorts of reasons, can't do what mm. Chris does. It might be their diagnosis is given much later. It may be just their kind of personality is just different. and that ability. But I think the offer of... Let's look at what you can do. I often say to people, because of course when we get given bad news, of course the immediate natural response is to kind of think about the losses that we 
incur. So, and families do struggle with this, I think. You know, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. The sense of loss of both abilities or activities or interests or bits of, you know, things about the person that you love. But if we can shift that, and and it's important to acknowledge those losses, but there's also something about thinking about things that you still can do. And that's, I guess, one of the things that I try and work with families is that acknowledging that loss is really important. People need that space to be able to work through that and to talk about it. But then trying to shift that, the so what, you know, what, what can you do? What can you still enjoy? Um, mm-hmm. Do you know, like, life is a, a series of adjustments, isn't it? You know, yes. In lots of ways. And adjustment's really hard. It it's is. not easy. But that's the thing that I hope that we try and support as admin nurses families to do is thinking about adapting to adjustment. So, mm. you know, what what are the things that the person still can do? What are the things that you can still do as a family? You know, and it might be, yes, the person used to be, I'm just, you know, a bit of brilliant pianist, let's say, for example. Mm. And maybe actually trying to get them to play the piano if they've lost some of those functional abilities to do so is not going to be helpful. Yeah. But maybe you adapt to... Can they listen to music or can they talk about music to other people? So as Chris said, you know, I can, I've still got something to give. Mm. You know, and that's really important, isn't it? Well, I think purpose in life is incredibly important, isn't it? And all the things you were talking about there when, I mean, other people have described dementia as a succession of losses. Of course, it is in a way because it does tend to take things away. But then... I think it was the same person who went on to say, but it sort of gives you some things as well. And I know that sounds very counterintuitive because what on earth does dementia give you? But it can. For example, I mean, I'm thinking of Wendy Mitchell here who lives with dementia, who said that actually she went from being so super busy, she was forced to slow down. And actually this has given her well for a start. I don't know if you've seen, but I mean, she's the most phenomenal photographer. Seriously, seriously good photographer. And I was commenting on one of her photographs and it was an insect on a leaf. And she said, well, yes, but, you know, because our brains go slower and I walk slower, I see these things that I didn't see before. And it's a way of sort of grasping the benefits, the good bits of which there might be some. I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna here, but, you know, it can sort of give you these things. So I don't know whether you feel, Chris, you know, other things that it's given you. I know it's a bit of, as I say, it's it's a strange concept to think of dementia positively giving you something but can you think of anything that it has other than your roles now within and being a trustee for the first time in your life and a director a board director which we now know for the outside of society but anything else sort of more personal perhaps that it's given you insights into something or I live by the sea and I can see the sea from my bedroom window and I love just being out in nature Mm -hmm. so I can leave my house and walk along the seafront and when I said that dementia is not all about memory, it's affected my walking and my balance, so I can't walk very far now. And I just get a bit fed up of walking up and down the same stretch of um, seafront from my house. So I've got myself a mobility scooter now. Ah. So I'll go to my mobility scooter and I'll park somewhere and have a walk then go on a bit further and have a walk. So although I'm not doing it all into my own steam, it's given me my independence back. I was going to say, that's independence, isn't it? Yeah, and I can go all the way to the other end of the um, the seafront and I can stop and have a coffee and then come all the way back again. And I had surgery on my arm and I had my hand in plaster so I couldn't drive. 
I could still drive my mobility scooter. So it's about looking for the things that you can still do. And I know you talked about Wendy, and I know Wendy has hallucinations. And because of her photography now, she'll take a photograph. And if what she sees is in the photograph, she knows it's real. If it's not in the photograph, then it's not real. And I think that um, it's just about trying to do things in a different way. But one of the things that I think really lacks, and this is where the Admiral nurses are so brilliant, is that almost like a peer support service. Mm, Because you don't get any peer support when you get your dementia diagnosis. It doesn't come into healthcare, it comes into social care. Mm. And you're more or less told, well, you've got dementia, get on and live your life. So I think that if we could buddy up with somebody who's newly diagnosed and sort of say, hang on a minute, you can still live a life, look. Absolutely, absolutely. That would give some hope. Yes, because I think they do that in the stroke world. If you have a stroke, I think this is right. Or anyway, certainly there's a a condition or, a, you know, and then when you are put in touch with somebody almost immediately... And I know very early on when I started to write about dementia, I met a man with dementia who said, you know what I'd really like is that actually at the point of diagnosis, because that person who delivers the diagnosis will know they're going to, they will just have a little bit of warning, that they just find somebody. And I'm sure you would be happy to do it, Chris, and so many people I know living with dementia would be happy to do it. So just they can say to the person who's just freshly diagnosed, in a bit of, well, that's probably an understatement, in shock, I'm going to introduce you to Chris. You don't have to talk to her if you don't want to, but Chris was diagnosed six months ago or a year ago, and here she is. Nobody better place to talk to you about what it's really like to live with this condition. Go and have a coffee. Go and have a drink. I can remember being at one peer support group meeting after I had the stroke, actually, and there was one lady there who was so quiet and so shy and she didn't think she could stay but she only stayed on condition she could make the teas and the coffees because that made her feel useful. So she stayed and I gave my talk. And afterwards she came up to me and she said, thank you so much for for giving my talk and explaining my diagnosis. And I said, but I was explaining my diagnosis, not your diagnosis. But she said, mine's exactly the same. And you put into words things that I couldn't put into words, but you have experienced exactly the same things as me. And she carried on coming to the meetings as long as she could make the tea because that made her feel useful. It wasn't enough just to come and listen to people talking and things like that. And she thanked me for telling her story, but I was, in fact, telling my story. I think that's why people like you, Chris, it's so powerful what you do because you you do show people that they're not alone and your story is individual and everybody says this, you meet one person with dementia... You meet one person with dementia, but it's also universal in that sense, isn't it? There will be parts of your story that resonate for somebody else. Actually, I was going to say with dementia, but maybe not even with dementia, you know, somebody else facing some other life-changing event. And I think that is the power of speaking fluently, openly, honestly with the experience. That's the power of it. And I think it's seeing hope when others can see that there's no hope at all and get them to see some hope. And that's exactly what Rachel did for me and uh, with Heather, is, you know, to see some hope in the things that I could still do and and draw on on those things. 
And Rachel, I know you said, and I was looking at your career actually, which you qualified as general nurse way back in 1988. So it is a long career and you went into stroke rehabilitation yourself and then brain injury service and then you know one way or another you came through to dementia but you describe admiral nurse being an admiral nurse as your dream job so I guess it's because of things like Chris has just said is it that it's your dream job I mean yeah it might sound a bit twee but there is something uh, you know I love listening to Chris talk about her experience with the diagnosis and Everybody's stories we know is very different. I, I hear stories that are really very sad and very distressing and quite traumatic as well. But there's a real privilege, and that's what I mean about, I don't want to belittle it, but there's a real privilege about people sharing things that are, are perhaps that they've not shared with other people before or helping or facilitating somebody just to connect with something that, that may give them a little bit of a reason to to keep going. And everybody is very different, as we know, and for some people that is incredibly hard. You know, I just was thinking, you mentioned about COVID and how difficult that was, and I actually set up this service that I now run nationally, funded by the Liberty Society, that I set it up right at the beginning of COVID. Mm. And, of course, Chris Colt was one of the first few people who contacted us, actually, which was lovely. But as part of the kind of feedback and evaluation of the role, we we kind of ask people to say, you know, what was it like? Did it help? What difference did it make? And one of the comments, and it was all anonymous, but somebody had what written... Was, what was the service, Rachel? So this is the Louis Body Apple Nurse Service. Ah, oh, right. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is the funded by the Louis Body Society. So we offer kind of individualised support. It's actually now me and one other colleague. So it was just me for two years. But we were asking for feedback because we need to demonstrate, as you often have to do with roles yes, these days, you know, what difference yeah, is yeah, it yeah. making? Yeah, yeah. But one thing that really, and I, it still stands with me today, is that somebody, and I don't know who it was for sure, but somebody had given feedback saying that before they'd made contact with myself, that they had been at the point of suicide. Right. And this was a family carer who had just lost all hope. It was the carer, not the individual with the dementia. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was, um, and actually, you know, very sadly, suicide and, in fact, homicide is quite high mm-hmm. in dementia care. So this is why supporting people is uh, you, you critical. Can't critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But just hearing, seeing that in black and white, that, you know, somebody said, actually, I wouldn't be here. Now, that's just incredibly humbling. I, I'm not going to be doing that for everybody, but if I can just make a well, little one, bit of one. Is incredible. Can I just say as well, I think that you have to be a, a special kind of person. You have to be a people person mm. to be an admin nurse. Mm. So it's not just the, the medical knowledge. Mm. Rachel is the most kind person. She's such a good listener. Mm. And I told her I'll do anything for her because I think the support she's given me and it gives others mm. is next to none. And I keep thinking back about Robin Williams, who committed yeah. suicide. Mm. At his autopsy, he was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. Yeah. And then I thought, if only he'd met a Rachel. A Rachel. He was still alive. You know, he may not have committed suicide. Mm. He may still be alive today. So that's just to show the importance of people like Rachel, that they can literally turn people's lives around and save people's lives. Mm. Well, thank you. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. So thank you, you two wonderful women. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both. 
And I think you're both doing such a lot in the world of dementia in your own different ways. So thank you very much indeed. And good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. It was fascinating to talk to Chris and Rachel and gain their two perspectives on Lewy body dementia, which is obviously far more common than I at least realised. Whenever I talk to people living with dementia, I'm astounded by their strength of character and honesty. The latter which they show, I think, because they genuinely want to help other people and their families facing similar scenarios. As regular listeners will know, Chris is not the first person who, on receiving her diagnosis, plunged into a deep trough of despair. Given there is no cure for dementia, this isn't surprising. But something brings them round. In Chris's case, the Alzheimer's Society's Live Well programme. In the case of Peter Berry, another of my guests, whose name came up today, it was separating himself from his condition, giving it a name and trying to outwit it through his cycling. I'm intrigued by how people dig deep inside themselves to overcome adversity and seek out the positives. And I wanted to have an Admiral Nurse, a specialist dementia nurse supported by the charity Dementia UK on my podcast ever since I launched it. So to talk to Rachel was wonderful. I've yet to meet an Admiral Nurse who doesn't humble me with what they do and the way in which they do it. They are indeed lifesavers. So thank you all. And thank you, Rachel and Chris, for being such lovely, talkative and informative guests. You can find the Louis Body Society at www.lewybody.org and the Alzheimer's Society at www.alzheimers.org.uk and finally, Dementia UK at www.dementiauk.org. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.